Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown. And today we are talking to our very own Forrest Richardson. Forrest joins us again to talk to us about the new DOT updates that are going to take effect sometime this fall. So we can all have a little bit of time to listen to him and make sure we are ready when those changes occur. Well, I hope you brought your frequent flyer card with you because I think you are our number one guest, Forrest. Uh, so it's good <laughs> to have you back. And we will punch that at the end of this episode. So today we wanted to discuss a topic that has been having some updates and a lot of things going on, especially with COVID. And that is the Department of Transportation and how things have been updated as well as kind of giving some people some information on kind of filling in any knowledge gaps that they may have with running an efficient program. So I've been told that there's been some updates that are taking effect September 2020, specifically with the hours of service. So could you review and let us know what are some of those big changes that are occurring this September? Sure. They should be coming out sometime in late September. It's typically like 170 days after they put the notice of proposed rulemaking out. And so the, the, one of the first ones was the revision to the 30-minute break rule for truck drivers. So they can remain on duty for their breaks, and they don't have to take a break until completing eight hours of driving. Under the current rules, drivers must get 30 minutes of off-duty time if they want to drive behind that eighth consecutive hour of their workday. So they would have to basically stop what they were doing and take that 30 minutes off-duty where they couldn't really do anything with the truck. They couldn't do inspections. They couldn't load, unload. They couldn't do anything with what the FMCSA calls safety-sensitive functions. That's basically anything with the vehicle or the truck or the load. So what that'll do is actually give them more flexibility. They can continue to do what they got to do and they can take their break when they need to within that time frame. So they don't have to kind of stop. They can stay on duty and still take their break. The other one was revisions to the sleeper berth exception. So this is for truck drivers that do overnight hauls and they have the sleeper cab. So there was obviously rules in place for that. And so this exception will allow them to split their required 10 hours of off-duty time into two periods, one being at least seven hours in a sleeper berth and the other being at least two hours off. So they basically do it a seven-hour, three-hour split or an eight-hour, two-hour split. In addition, neither rest period will count towards that driver's 14-hour driving window, which is the limit that they can drive, which is a good significant change. And we'll just give them a little bit greater flexibility in getting the the rest that they need at a time that makes sense to them. There was a change to the adverse driving conditions exception. So adverse driving conditions are things like weather and traffic and things like that where you hit, you know, your window and you can drive up to an X amount of additional time to get to where you need to to take your mandatory rest break or whatever that is. So this, this exception really will extend it by two hours. So the maximum window during which Driving is permitted when a driver encounters an unexpected weather or traffic conditions. You know, for truck drivers, this means the exception will allow them from like 11 hours up to 13 hours. So if they had an 11 hour max drive time limit and they hit weather or traffic or some other kind of extenuating circumstances, they can drive up to 13 hours before they have to take that break, you know, up to their 16 hour window of time. Bus drivers or passenger carriers. What it does for them is their max time right now is 10 hours that they can actually drive. And if they hit those certain extenuating circumstances, 
it gives them up to 12 hours driving within that 17 hour on duty period for them or window, if you will, limit. So that's a, that's a pretty significant allowance when you need to. And probably one of the most used, especially for smaller carriers, is the 100 air mile exemption. So currently, with some exceptions for driver salespersons and drivers of ready mix concrete delivery, they kind of have specific requirements for them to meet this exemption. But drivers must operate within 100 air miles or what's really 115 statute miles, regular miles to, to us. They have to be released from work within a 12-hour period, and property carriers have some specific exemptions for them as well or limitations for those guys. But the revisions to the 100-hour mile, the short-haul exception is what a lot of people know about. It doesn't really change the max drive time for all the drivers in that category, but what it does is it lengthens the maximum on-duty period from 12 hours to 14 hours. It just extends, it also extends the, the distance which, which they can operate. So it used to be 100 air miles or 115 statute miles, mean, meaning you had to leave your distribution center or whatever, and you could not exceed 115 miles. You had to operate within that 150 miles to meet this exemption, along with some other requirements. But it gives them from 115 to 172 miles. That really kind of makes a little bit difference. And, and especially for carriers working like kind of on the border of the state and they need to go across the, you know, the state line to get some things done, but they couldn't because they didn't fall within this change may give them enough to kind of move a little bit further or operate a little bit farther and still meet that exemption. And really what that really means is if you meet this hundred mile air exemption, you don't have to keep driver logs, which is challenging for almost every carrier out there. Thanks for that uh, great rundown of those those four updates and changes. It seems a lot of them have to do with hours and, and time requirements other than that last bit, a little bit of increase in, in miles. How do these changes overall affect the various industries across the United States? What's the big picture view of these updates for us? I think overall, and even the FMCSA in, in their Federal Register Notice of Proposal Rulemaking, the main thing is it's supposed to improve efficiency without compromising safety. So how it does that is it gives drivers the ability to increase their driving, their driving time or their on-duty time, but it doesn't change the max driving time in any category. So, you know, if they had a limit, they still have that limit of actual driving time right? That's not going to change. But their max on duty time, they can they can push it out an extra two hours if they need to for extenuating circumstances. And it just in the 30 minute break rule, there's another one in there as well, probably important to touch on. Previously, like we mentioned in the very beginning, so they were required to take that 30 minute break in between that 80 hours and they have to log off and be off duty where they couldn't do anything. Now they can actually take that 30 minute break while they're still technically on duty, regardless of whether they have to do driver's logs or not. But they can actually do other things to be efficient with that time and get still get the rest that they need. So it gives them a little bit more efficiency to handle their operations day to day without really compromising the initial safety of the limitations that they started putting back all the way back in 1937. Some of the quantified and estimated cost savings, it's estimated, obviously, it's going to allow flexibility for drivers but it also reduced some costs for motor carriers. And the FMCSA estimates that about you know, the 10-year motor carrier cost attributable to the change in the 30-minute break provision should result in an estimated cost savings of about $2.8 million. But if you express that on an annualized basis, that's about $277 million, you know, at a 3% discount rate. So that's some significant 
quantifiable cost savings. Now, obviously, as time goes on, they'll see how well that vets out. But some of the non-quantifiable benefits due to the uncertainty and driver behavior, meaning how are they going to take advantage of this fully, is the flexibility that it gives drivers right now to take that time when they need it and to mitigate the impacts of certain variables like weather and traffic and other detention times, to take breaks without a penalty when they need rest and things like that. So is the kind of the main idea of this is that before they were told, okay, if you're on a 30-minute break, you can't do anything. And so it kind of the work that they the non-driving work that they could have accomplished during that 30 minutes was being pushed out, which was making them have a longer day. And now they can do that during the break, which will shorten their day. Yeah, it just gives them, you think of it from like a manufacturing downtime, you know, if you had a throughput on a manufacturing line and they track downtime like they track everything else, if something's not moving forward in the work of the day, we need to know why. Well, before they had to actually log off when they, it was a mandatory 30 minute break that they had to take. And they had to log off if they had to do driver's logs. It didn't matter. But if they had to do their driver's logs, they had to log off duty. And when you're off duty, technically, you can't do any other safety sensitive functions like unload your truck or do a vehicle inspection or do anything. They want, they wrote it that way so that they would force drivers to have a break, a rest. So now they're given a little, a little bit of flexibility to say, hey, you can work your eight hour shift and keep moving stay on duty and still take your 30 minute rest break when you feel the need to. So essentially that's kind of what's going on. So it should gain some efficiencies and and be kind of like a nice compromise for drivers that weren't really keen on having to take that mandatory break when they weren't ready. So these are definitely a lot of updates, which are, are great to know. And so kind of transitioning to, from these are the updates to things that a, maybe a new transportation supervisor, what are some things that they're going to need to know about? So if we talked about, now it's going to switch into how are they audited or how does the government check in on on these companies? Sure. Audits are the name of the game for you know any DOT manager, whether you're the corporate or you're, you're at the grassroots level. That's the name of the game. The majority of carriers are selected from a a high risk definition under the compliance, safety, and accountability enforcement model. So that's a national system that motor carriers have to be registered through. And it tracks you through different, what they call basics, just different categories of things like unsafe driving, hazmat, drug and alcohol, those kinds of things. And it ranks you based on your peers. So when you get a really bad score, that might kick you into the need for an audit. Now, currently under the COVID rules, what FMCSA has out there is that they're going to be doing more and more virtual-based records review. Obviously, you know, IRS is doing the same thing. If you're waiting on your tax re- you know, return, it's not, you know, and you did a written copy, it's not going to come for a while. So they're going to be following those same protocols and trying to do more virtual base. So I would want to lead with that because this is not a fear-based thing. This is more just for education. But if you, if you have numbers that are really bad, according to your peers, and it's a high profile fatal accident, you follow up to a conditional or an unsatisfactory review that you already had previously, an investigation of some safety related complaints that are serious enough to warrant a compliance review. 
a request by the motor carrier itself to audit its operation, although that doesn't happen too often. But some of your better motor carriers that have really great records and they do that, you know, and, and obviously new carriers. So if you're a new carrier into the into the industry, you're probably going to get inspected at least virtually for sure. So they didn't say that they were going to not they were going to suspend all on-site compliance review. They're just going to they're going to exercise some discretion. And that does not apply. It's worth mentioning. It doesn't apply to motor carriers that domiciled in Mexico. So if it's a company that's domiciled in Mexico and they do operations here, they may, depending on these scores, choose to go for an on-site inspection where they they might not for another U.S. carrier. They were very clear about that. Forrest, if a company is audited, what kind of records are they expected to share? Sure. The general ones, obviously proof of financial responsibility as an enterprise. Do you have the limits that you need? So if you're a property carrier, you got to carry X. If you're hauling hazmat, you got to carry X. If you're a passenger carrier, so they have those in the rules. They'll obviously you got to have an accident register. So just this is just a summary of all your accident reports required by the state or any other government entity that you have to respond to and maybe even your insurers to get a better premium. But all all carriers are required to have an accident register. Your drug and alcohol testing records. So if those apply, obviously you got to have those. Driver qualification files is definitely a big one, really centers home on that. And that's where a lot of the technical paperwork compliance problems happen just because it's not organized or they don't have them stored the way they need to or those kinds of things. Driver vehicle inspection reports and maintenance records that are required. Obviously, records of duty status or your driver logs and all supporting documents that go along with that. And obviously, any hazardous material records. So those have retention limits and certain things that have to go with it. So those are your main ones to be focused on. We hate to talk about the negative things, but what happens <laughs> if someone fails an audit? Because it happens, so they should be prepared or, you know, it's something we should think about. Sure, sure. And again, I've ran into very few DOT inspectors that implement this that are just there just to, most of them, like a lot of OSHA inspectors, they get a, they get a bad rap. They're there to help, you know, and their main goal is to double check things. So, But ultimately, if you fail an audit, again, it's probably going to be coming out of the CSA scores, you know, to keep an eye on. You get a conditional safety rating. So that basically means that the motor carrier doesn't have adequate safety management controls in place. And this could result in more violations and and maybe more penalties. If you get an unsatisfactory rating, generally you have about 60 days to complete that corrective action plan and have that approved by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, you know, or that auditor, you know. If the FMCSA doesn't approve that corrective action plan within 60 days, typically they can and they might put you out of service until you provide that corrective action plan. So the unsatisfactory rating is the lowest one. You definitely don't want to have that one on your record. And if you do, if you have one in the past, well, it's it's time to take a look at it and make sure you're doing the right things to to keep you out of that. It kind of reminds me of the scores that I got in elementary school. It was <laughs> basically <laughs> the three levels. You either, you either passed, you need a little improvement, or you're not doing well. So Exactly. They keep it simple. That's good. If you're listening to this podcast and wondering about your DOT program, reach out to fit for work We can help answer questions, get you organized for an audit, and even help with employee training check out our website, wellworkforce.com, and click on the Connect With Us button. 
With clients in every conceivable industry across 44 states and in Canada, we have 21 years of experience to help you with your DOT program. So what type of training is typically required to get a company ready or a driver ready to meet these safety requirements? Like in the OSHA regs and and even in some of the environmental pieces, there's a few areas where they actually spell out what training you need for specific situation, in this case, specific drivers doing specific tasks. And then there's other areas where it, where it's implied. So let's quickly cover kind of typically what's required. If you have an entry-level driver, and that's defined in the regs as a driver with less than one, ex- one year of experience, they have to have particularly and specifically hours of service and fatigue training, driver qualifications, what does that mean to them, any health and wellness that's applicable to them, and obviously the whistleblower protections that they have under their current position. They do have to have that certificate, and it does be, need to be provided by a training provider that's actually registered on the federal registered national list. So they, it can't just be any training company. They have to be approved, the FMCSA, and be on their approved registered list. And that does include class and behind-the-wheel training. So there's some specifics, but the main ones for those guys with less than a year of experience, hour of service and fatigue, driver qualifications, what does that mean to them? health and wellness. What does that mean to them? And then obviously whistleblower. The next one is drivers of longer combination vehicles. Obviously, you know, you've seen the two and three trailers out there with UPS sometimes, you know, the really, really big ones. These obviously require... Uh, It gets really scary on a windy day when there's a third trailer, I got to say. Oh, I have nothing but respect. I've actually ridden in those before. I've never driven, uh, you know, anything longer than two. And I did a lot of driving too in the military when we had a lot of convoys and did a lot of crazy stuff back then. But those guys have nothing but my respect. That's a really, really tough job to do. But it is spelled out. There's specific training in part 380. If anybody wants to go and find it, that's where it's at. And then obviously hazmat driver and employee training. So hazmat has some very specific. So if they transport or they handle, so that could be a driver and any employee on the dock handling hazardous material by loading, they have to be trained every three years. The retention on those documents, those training documents is three years. And they have to generally be trained within 90 days of hire and or before they do any unsupervised hazmat work that's loading, handling, doing whatever. That training really includes uh, general awareness and familiarization of what they're handling and what it really means to them. It also includes its mandatory function specific on their job. So equipment, function and task specific with that hazmat. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it specifically here. They're also required to have security training if that carrier is required to have a security plan. So if they're handling certain amounts of hazardous materials that are on a list, they have to have a you know risk management and a security plan in place. So the, the drivers and the employees would have to know what that is. And then modal specific training. That just means planes, trains, and automobiles. How are we handling it and how are you going to do it? The other one that's actually required and this is most often, is what's called reasonable suspicion supervisor training. And that's typically required every 12 to 18 months. That's in part 382, if anybody needs to go and look at that reference. But it basically requires one hour each of training every 12 to 18 months on alcohol and drugs, how to notice the signs and symptoms, how to actually interview, because, you know, now you're kind of crossing. This is where 
safety and HR kind of get into kind of cross each other's territory. So the supervisors are the front line. They can make this witness. But if they have to, if they witness somebody that they think has reasonable suspicion and there's definitions in this training of what that is, there's a specific way they have to go about doing it. And there's specific documentation that they have to do under the regs and over the overall employment law. So that's kind of where the two disciplines kind of connect and can help each other. Some implied DOT training requirements really comes out of parts 390 through 393. You can look at 395 and 396. I know we're moving pretty quickly here because there's a lot of information, but uh, you can, I'm sure our listeners can back it up if they need to. But take a look at those areas. And there's a section in there, a general gray statement says every driver and employee shall be instructed regarding and shall comply with all applicable regulations contained in this subchapter. Like, holy cow. Okay, what does that really mean? Well, you really want to drive it down to the main documents, you know, that you have to be required and what they're doing. So driver qualifications, what rules them in, what rules them out, train them on that. Hours of service. What does this mean to us here? And based on our, our industry and what we're doing, train them on those things. Vehicle inspections. Okay, these are the vehicles that we have. This is how you inspect it. So just look at the documents that we kind of talked about previously about, you know, your alcohol and drug program. Here's how it works here. You know, so you just train them on all of those things. So you can really look at parts 390 through 393 and parts 395 and 396 to kind of look at some more of those implied training areas. There's a lot there, obviously. So in that implied part is the hours of service, which then brings us circling all the way back to the beginning. And and those were the main changes that are going to be occurring here. And is it up to a company then to update their staff? How do you suggest that they they go about informing the drivers on these new changes? Or is it the driver's responsibility to stay up to date on these changes? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a both, but, you know, from an employer-employee standpoint, obviously the employer has more resources or should to stay up to date on things. And that would be via the, the safety professional, the DOT manager, what have you. So that's part of their role is to make sure that the company is aware of these changes and that they figure out a way to kind of drive that down. I'm always a big fan of spending time on the front end, measure twice, cut once, more sweat on the practice field, less blood on the battlefield, if you will. And having a very, very, very robust new employee orientation training, that's where you're going to make your, your most efficient. It's not, it's not the end all one shot, you know, solution to everything. But if you don't have a very robust new employee orientation where when that, before you release that driver, they, they go through everything in your program and they understand it. They get a copy of the regulations. You get a receipt that that you actually gave them those things. So there's several things in there that we really don't have time to cover in this format that are required, but really it starts at the new employee orientation. So the other stuff as they change, you know, reg- regs take a long time to change. They go back and forth. They might be 18 to 36 months, maybe even longer. So they do change frequently across the board between environmental DOT and, and OSHA, but within each bucket, if you will. There's not that many. So it's it's fairly easy to kind of give quick updates in your driver meetings. Hey, here's kind of the new change and how it's going to affect you, you know, and keep it real simple. So, you know, for those of uh, out there in our audience that are kind of struggling with how do I wrap my head around it? Well, go back and look at 
you know, your documents that you need to have for an audit. Make sure you get organized. That's the first step. Just go through and work through all those. Make sure you know where those things are at or who controls them at your at your company. Access to certain records have to be secured in certain instances. So just kind of know where things are at and get things organized. And then start working on just the quick hitters. You know, these hours of service changes, it's real simple. I mean, we covered them in, what, five, ten minutes? They shouldn't take that much longer in a driver meeting to do. For sure. And I, and I think that kind of the big message here is that while there are changes, they are not constantly, it's not like every week there's a new a new update. So it's possible even if somebody's you know just been hired as a new supervisor to get updated on this information and to know that there are resources either here at Fit for Work or just even through the government agency that you have registered through that they want to help you get compliant. You know, I don't think they're hoping to shut you down, that they want your business to thrive and be safe and compliant. Absolutely. These folks that are having to enforce these rules, they're prior drivers, they're prior DOT officers. These are a lot of these people came from, you know, they were the ground pounders out there dealing with it. So they definitely, a lot of them have operational knowledge of what the people are going through and the companies are going through. Great. Well, awesome. We appreciate your uh, breaking down this this topic and hopefully we'll uh, allow for greater compliance and safety within Department of Transportation because, you know, when a car crashes, it's it's definitely sad when it, when a semi crashes, it can be a travesty. So, Oh yeah, it's really tough. And there's a few real quick, if I could mention, there's a few for those of you out there that are kind of looking for quick hitters or some resources, just take a look at FMCSA's website. You can go to the, the CSA website as well. If when in doubt, just Google it, you can find it. But the CSA, if you're looking for DQ file checklist, what do I have to keep on hand? How long do I have to keep these things for? So if you go to the, for instance, if you go to the CSA website and you type in DQ file checklist, if you look to the right, there's going to be a toolbar on their webpage for forms. You'll see a DQ file checklist. It's a real quick PDF form that you can look. It'll tell you what you have to keep and it has the links to the rules. So it's, it's a one or two page document for all your DQ files. It'll tell you in a snapshot what you have to have on file and how long you have to have it for. So it's a real good handy tool to use. Well, thank you so much for breaking this all down for us, Forrest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah. um, it really, really helps. Uh, you know, some of us are are different kind of learners, and not all of us enjoy reading all of those updates and everything. So we appreciate your time and uh, breaking it down for everybody and making it into a nice digestible bite there. So thanks again, and and consider your podcast frequent flyer card officially stamped. Thank you very much. Happy to help. Appreciate the time. Like I mentioned in the interview, I'm really glad that Forrest was able to break down those updates for us and even a little bit more on getting ready for an audit and different training that needs to be done. Um, it's always nice to, it's kind of like your Cliff Note or Spark Notes version of those updates. And like Forrest said on the measure twice, cut once thing, this is your time to get measuring. You've got some advanced notice on these updates. How are you going to get that information out to your drivers? What's the best way to get them all updated? 
updated and up to speed on what is going on so that in the fall, we only have to cut once and, and everybody is up to date. So perfect timing for that. And, and we can get everybody on the same level and, and at the same speed. For sure. And being able to get this information, you know, while you and I don't drive and, you know, I'm going to assume most of the people who listen to the podcast aren't drivers per se. I really enjoy learning about what safety measures are being taken in different industries and different settings. So nice to know that these type of steps are being taken, that they want to make drivers continue to make them safe, which continues to keep us safe. Because really, you know, when, when you're moving loads that are so much heavier than any car that's, you know, that we drive, it's, it's nice to know that they're are taking their job seriously and they're making adjustments and trying to be updated. And so, yeah, I really appreciate the the efforts that are being put into keeping our, our truck drivers safe. And I just want to thank you for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And to get started preventing injuries, feel free to visit our website at wellworkforce.com. And you can email Amber and I with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives. 